Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Once again, we have roughly half an hour, maybe a little bit less. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I don't want to make any specific promises of time, even though I do, of course, know the exact time. We have this much science coming into your ear holes and through your um, audio cortex processing (laughs) neurons and that sort of thing. I don't know. Look it up, people. Uh, and with me today, I have, of course, Claire and Stu. Claire, Hello. what are you talking about today? Well, I am. I have the pleasure of having a chat with postdoctoral research fellow Christopher O'Brien um, about feral pigs. I don't know if you've uh, maybe seen seen some news reports recently. Uh, Christopher has is the lead author on a paper that's just been published looking at the impact of feral pigs worldwide um, and uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions um, and has made the very fascinating, um, very troublesome conclusion that um, if you looked at the emissions of, the, of feral pigs worldwide, they'd, they'd be equivalent um, to over 1 million cars, the greenhouse gas emissions that over 1 million cars produce every year. So that's not just because um, they burp and fart a lot. Um, they, um, they uproot soil. So they, they do a lot of damage to the environment, but they uproot a lot of soil and, and um, create a whole lot of carbon dioxide um, released from, from soils. So um, I'm going to have a bit of a chat to Christopher about that. And um, yeah, I don't know whether he's a pig hunter, but um, maybe I'll ask him that as well. Cool. And um, could you ask him to maybe compare the pigs, not to cars, but to motorcycles, so we can do have like a um, pigs versus hogs kind of comparison? <laughs> Absolutely, of, of of course. I mean, it's um, it's it's the only question that I have in my mind now. And Stu, how about you? Well, it's uh, it's funny that you were talking about the the channels of uh, hearing into the human brain because. The person I'm going to be talking about today actually started off their research career in the field of uh, electronics and uh, artificial intelligence, but unfortunately has stepped outside of their uh, field of expertise and started making random claims about all sorts of things. But what I really wanted to talk about was Uh, a logical fallacy that this brings up, which is the appeal to authority. And it's when someone uh, claims to have or is held up to have authority on something which they actually have no expertise in. And uh, I just want to talk a little bit about that in relation to this specific scientist, whose name is Stephanie Seneff, uh, who you may have heard of um, for various reasons. If not, you will know a lot more about her than you may want to uh, by the end of my story. Fantastic. Well, I am just glad that for once it's not a physicist who is causing all this trouble <laughs> um, and stepping outside their domain. Yeah, biophysicist is one of the things she calls herself. So, <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Fine. <laughs> Always a physicist. Well, 
on with the show. <laughs> Always the physicists. Oh my god. Uh... So feral pigs are one of the most dangerous and damaging pest species in Australia. They destroy habitat, they outcompete native species, they cause havoc on farmland. And as researchers have just modelled, they have a huge impact on global greenhouse gas emissions. To talk us through this new research on pest pigs, we have postdoctoral research fellow from the University of Queensland, Christopher O'Brien. Christopher, welcome to Lost in Science. Hi, thank you for having me. What is it about feral pigs that causes such serious impacts on the environment? Yeah, so, so feral pigs are what we call a multi-threat species. They, they damage multiple values. So what, I mean, what do I mean by that? It's like they, they damage agriculture, they damage native plants and animals, uh, and, and our recent study has shown that they also have a climate impact and they, they have these impacts uh, through a number of processes, one of which is their effects on soil. And as many of your listeners are aware, uh, pigs use their tough snouts to uproot the soil. And this soil damage uh, obviously can affect crops. It can affect livestock production. It can affect biodiversity. Mm. And we were particularly interested in how they impact carbon emissions. Behaviorally, are pigs rooting around in the in the ground? They're trying to find food. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So they they usually feed in mobs. Uh, occasionally, they'll feed alone, but uh, usually in, in quite large groups. And that's right. They they uproot the soil uh, in search of food. Things like uh, fungi, uh, plant roots, and and even insects and vertebrates. Right. And so, what's the relationship here between you know them uprooting? the soil for food and uh, the release of greenhouse gases. Yeah. So when, when soil is turned over, when it's exposed to oxygen, that exposure of oxygen promotes the, the rapid growth and development of microbes in the soil. And this rapid growth of microbes causes emissions uh, through the breakdown of organic material in the soil. And that, that results in carbon dioxide being, being emitted into the atmosphere. And is it mostly carbon dioxide that you see emitted in terms of greenhouse gases or are there other gases? My understanding is that there are other gases that are emitted. Uh, we particularly looked at CO2 emissions. Yeah. And um, it's, it's also important to note that emissions from soil damage occur on a day-to-day basis. You know, this happens uh, all the time when we, when we do agriculture, for example, and that's where there's this somewhat of a, a big call for, for more conservation agriculture uh, approaches, mm. but also, you know, through deforestation and urbanization and what we call land use change uh, as being a large driver of these carbon dioxide emissions from soil. And uh, wild pigs are just another form of, of these human mediated impacts on the climate. I guess they're a very widespread problem. Are there any parts of you know, the globe that aren't um, inhabited by, by pigs, wild pigs now? That's a good question. I mean, wild pigs are, they're actually native to all of Europe and most of Asia. So they're, they're a native species in a huge chunk of the globe, but they're, they've been spread throughout the world by, by humans. 
in, in Oceania, so, so Australia, New Zealand, uh, Polynesia, parts of Africa, South America, North America, basically every continent except Antarctica has wild pigs on it. <laughs> and they do pretty well in Australia. There's, there's, they're quite abundant. Yeah, that's right. So they, they cover almost half of the, the, the country. About 45% of Australia oh. has wild pigs. And uh, the estimates in terms of population size are, are wide ranging. But some recent research suggests that it's about 3 million pigs in Australia. That's a lot of pigs. It's a lot of pigs. A wow. lot of soil damage as well. And, and our study found that for Australia, this soil damage, the whole area of the soil, we sort of added up all the soil damage. And we found that the area is about equivalent to the size of, uh, of Israel, which is about <gasps> 22,000 square kilometers. So it's quite a substantial, just raw area of soil being, being damaged. And, and our model suggests that the, the CO2 from this damage is about the same as 650,000 cars in terms of emissions. And that's just in Australia, did you say? So that, that's our results for Oceania. So that would include wow, New right. Zealand as well. But, yeah. but given just the, the sheer land mass and, and population sizes for Australia, it's reasonable to say that the majority of that effect is in Australia. So, Chris, you're talking about your modelling um, and you're really looking at the effect that the feral pig population you know, has on the soil and the greenhouse gas emissions. So um, can you talk us through how you, how you undertook this research? Yeah, so this is a computer-based analysis. So we, we just took the power of all the data that's been collected in the field that we were aware of, at least, and we put these data into a computer simulation. And so we essentially generated 10,000 maps of, of wild pig densities. So we have this, uh, this great model that, that predicts population densities, population sizes of pigs. And so we generated essentially 10,000 possible outcomes of pig densities around the world. And then we then said, okay, well, we, now that we know a, a general sense of predicted population sizes, what, what does that mean in terms of soil damage? And so we did a, a similar approach for soil damage using data from Australia, actually, from a, a long-term study in uh, the Australia Capital Territory from Namaji National Park. And we, we ran 10,000, likewise 10,000 simulations of uh, wild pig damage. And then we took an, another model looking at the effects of that damage on CO2 emissions using a, a number of case studies around the world, case studies in Switzerland, China, and, and the Americas to, get, to give us a, a bit of a range of possible outcomes of uh, CO2 emissions from this damage. So from that, um, you talked a little bit about the, your findings from Oceania, but um, your models told could can, can tell us so much more about the global impact um, that pigs have on uh, emissions. That's right, yeah. So the, the, the nice thing about doing these, uh, these simulation studies is we can get a sense of, of damage, not only for the whole world, but for some of these regions. And so for the whole world, we found that um, the, the estimated soil area being, being destroyed on an annual basis is about 36,000 square kilometers. Um, and that's about the size of, uh, size of the Netherlands or, or England, roughly. It's, um, it's, it's staggering. Yeah, it's, it's interesting looking at 
you know, the wild pigs are sort of a, a good example for this sort of study because they're one of the most widespread invasive species. They're well known for their soil damage, but we haven't really had a global sense of what that means in terms of, of land area and, of course, uh, the, the carbon, the vulnerability of the carbon in the soil. Because mm. I, I guess the key takeaway from this is that soil is one of the, the key players in, in mitigating climate change. Soil stores carbon. It stores three times more carbon than the atmosphere. And apart from the ocean, it's the, um, the biggest carbon pool in the world. And so, I mean, part of me is thinking, what are the solutions? Can you remediate this soil? I mean, what are the solutions here? Well, I, I wish there was a one-off silver bullet. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly challenging problem. And anybody who's tried to manage pigs uh, over the years would, would tell you that uh, it's it's not an easy thing to fix. Um, so it, it takes a very context specific local scale approach in some cases, you know, and it also depends on what value you're trying to protect. So if you're trying to protect agricultural lands, the approaches you take might be different than if all you cared about was biodiversity, for example, or if all you cared about was climate impacts, the approaches might be different. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, well, if you spend weeks in a helicopter shooting pigs, trying to manage their populations, well, that also has a carbon footprint that needs to be accounted for if, if you care about uh, climate impacts. And so there's going to be sort of this uh, cost and benefit assessment looking at, well, how are you managing pigs? What's, what's the net benefit to, to the climate in terms of CO2 emissions being saved uh, over the long term from reducing pigs? Um, so, sorry, that's a long answer to your question, but it's, it's a complicated problem. Does pig shooting have any, have any place in that? <laughs> sure. It's definitely one of the approaches that, that uh, works for, for reducing pig populations. Um, a challenge is uh, wild pigs reproduce at a rapid rate. So it requires, you know, a sustained reduction and a commitment over a uh, long period. Um, and, and luckily there's, uh, you know, a lot of these efforts are being consolidated in, in an upcoming um, feral pig action plan. Um, and uh, that'll be rolling out in September, I understand. So, so there's a, a national effort in, in, in uh, tackling this problem. And Chris, the modeling that you've done, um, how do you hope that uh, your research is going to inform, I guess, uh, management of, you know, pigs and, and other feral species or um, greenhouse gas emission policies as well? Sure, yeah. You know, this study sort of opens the door for us to look at threats to, to additional values, and in, in this case, the climate, and how we can harness this sort of approach for um, you know, getting resources for, for uh, you know, mitigating threats to the climate, as well as other threats. You know, as we've mentioned, wild pigs damage agriculture. They're, they've been responsible for the extinction of species in Australia, and they're responsible for the decline of a, a lot of native plants and animals. So their, their reduction in terms of, of emissions is, is a part of that equation when, when assessing the benefits of wild pig, pig uh, reduction. So as a researcher, my, my objective is not to necessarily advocate for the, the eradication of pigs necessarily from this research. My, my goal is to present the numbers, present, well, he, here's another threat from, from this widespread pest, 
and uh, I'll leave it up to the decision makers and the policy makers to, to decide how they weigh up that, that information. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today, talking to us all about uh, the feral pig problem and, yeah, offering some insights into what computer modelling can do in terms of climate emissions, yeah, research for the future. Thanks for having me. I'm theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, and you're listening to Lost in Science, which is spreading scientific knowledge across multiple branches of the wave function of the universe. The process of becoming an expert in a scientific field is a long and complicated journey, starting as an undergraduate and ending up after many years in some sort of postdoctoral position. Oh, I mean, arguably from uh, the from kindergarten, right? Well, yeah, they do tell you to forget a lot of stuff you learnt in high school when you get to uni, but that's that's a different story. <laughs> an undergraduate degree in a particular field, or even a general science degree, may lead to an honours degree, then possibly a master's or into a PhD in a specific and focused area of study. And the more of an expert someone becomes in their field, the more concentrated their area of their expertise becomes. And two students starting from the same point may end up in quite different fields, even though they study, you know, the same general, say, chemistry or physics or something like that. So it's not that they're not capable of understanding other areas within their discipline or even science outside their immediate area. It's just that they haven't done the work necessary to prove that they do understand it. And that's an important thing. So an appeal to authority is when someone holds up their own or someone else's qualifications or their job as evidence they are an expert, which may actually be fine if those qualifications are relevant. But using qualifications not relevant to the area being discussed or using a position of authority in a field not related is when an appeal to authority becomes what we call a logical fallacy. Famous example of that is Linus Pauling, a Nobel Prize winner for chemistry, who went on to win a Peace Prize, but also went off on a tangent about vitamins for decades, for which there's still very little evidence. He's the vitamin C guy who is basically responsible for people buying Mm. vitamin C to ward off things which they have very little impact on. Using his credentials as a Nobel Prize winner, he gained a lot of traction for his ideas about human health, which were completely unrelated to his field of expertise, which is a classic appeal to authority. So a more modern example is the case of Stephanie Seneff, who I want to focus on here for a while as she has published a book which makes outrageous claims about a chemical which is commonly used. And I'll come back to that chemical later. It's glyphosate, just to uh, spoiler alert. Um, Stephanie Seneff is an American scientist. She got an undergraduate degree in a field called biophysics, which is the application of physics theories and methods to biological phenomena. She went on to study electrical engineering and completed a PhD in computer science, her thesis based on speech analysis to improve machine-based speech generation and recognition. That was in 1985, and Seneff went on to become a researcher at MIT in their computer science and artificial intelligence lab, working on algorithms for understanding spoken language by computers. So basically trying to work out Can we speak to computers and they can understand it? That's what her field is. So over the years, she published 170 peer-reviewed articles on these topics in a wide range of mid- to high-level journals. 
and has a relatively good record in the field of her research. But in 2011, she began publishing articles in different journals about completely unrelated topics, mainly related to biochemistry, in which she has no qualifications. And her target was largely a specific chemical, which I mentioned earlier, named glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in the well-known herbicide Roundup. So the chemical itself is very effective at killing weeds, which is its primary use. That's what it was put on the market to do. And it does it so well that it's the most used agricultural chemical in the world, which has probably reasonably led to concern about unidentified side effects. So people are concerned. It's one Mm -hmm. of the most used chemicals in the world. What if it's doing things we don't know about? Mm -hmm. On that, the EU was just delivered an 11,000-page report on the safety of glyphosate, and the EU is one of the big negative approach to chemical use. They are down on a lot of uh, commonly used chemicals. Um, They were the first to ban neonicotinoids, which is one of the things that they thought were killing bees in Europe, things like that. So they're very anti-chemical in general, which is probably largely political and not necessarily scientific, But regardless, they had this 11,000-page report delivered, concluding there was no evidence it caused major problems beyond those to be expected from reliance on any chemical. So there's problems with using the same chemical over and over again. You get resistance and all those sorts of things. But there's no, according to this report, major problems with this chemical that are unforeseeable. So that's an interesting document that's available. You can read the full 11,000 pages online if you're really interested. Just look it up. The glyphosate story is for another day. We're talking about appeals to authority and how that applies to Stephanie Seneff in particular and also about predatory journals. So most scientific journals have a process by which submissions are vetted by an editorial team. They have a look at the Mm -hmm. submission, see if it's valid, Then it's followed by a peer review where other experts in the field evaluate the paper and accepted papers get published. Other experts in the field of that paper can respond to the paper, give their feedback and criticism in the journal itself, can lead to further research and sometimes corrections in papers. So-called predatory journals, such as those where Senef has published her work, are pretty much fake journals where authors can pay to have their work published. And there's no real peer review process. So you can kind of write what you want because nobody's paying any attention to them. A lot of them are very low impact in that nobody who is a serious researcher would cite these journals in their own work unless they were criticising them and saying they weren't very good, which is mm. often how that comes about. And there's, there's a score for impact for each journal as well that sort of gives someone who might not be familiar with the journal an understanding about how reliable and creditable the research that's published in that journal is. Yeah, that's right. And these predatory journals are very, very low-scoring journals. They're you know, among the lowest that exist. And it is because people know that you can pretty much pay to get stuff published in them, right? which is not really what they're supposed to be there for. So her work that she has published in these predatory journals, there's no experimentation involved. She hasn't done any experiments to draw her conclusions. She's basically just pulled data from other papers and done pretty poor analysis on the data, a lot of correlations and not a lot of actual statistics on this data. And there's nothing wrong with using existing data and analysing it. This is what meta-analyses do all the time, but that is not what's going on here. And there's a number of Better qualified critics have pointed out their errors, including Stephen Novella of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and Science-Based Medicine, which is another great website if you're interested in that sort of thing. 
One of the biggest flaws is that she appears to have an answer in search of a hypothesis. Almost every paper she publishes in this area blames the same chemical for the problem, and that chemical is glyphosate. She has blamed the use of glyphosate with no plausible mechanism for everything including autism, celiac disease, concussions, and, of course, the biggest problem of all at the moment, COVID-19. So this one chemical is causing all of these problems magically because there's no plausible mechanism for the chemical to actually do this. And she just keeps publishing these papers and finding another problem that is caused by this one chemical. And it just, this is not how science works at all. This is not hypothesis testing. This is, you know, devil worship or something like that. I'm not exactly sure. I'm merely a physicist myself, so I don't want to step outside my area of expertise here, but I thought concussions are more to do with being hit on the head rather than an agricultural chemical. Yeah, or COVID-19 was caused by a virus. Hey, you know, I'm no virologist myself, but it seems pretty far-fetched to me as well. (laughs) Look, she's just published a book about how glyphosate is going to eat your babies, which, again, (laughs) is not something that scientists do certainly don't publish books about science outside the field of their expertise it's published by a general publisher on of non-science books it's not a scientific publisher it's no science text it's more like a rant about a specific thing she doesn't like and that let me just say is fine everybody is free to rant about things they don't like (laughs) (coughs) (laughs) but But to dress it up as something else and to use her position at MIT and her previous qualifications to present it as some kind of authoritative view about a subject is dishonest, to say the least. It's an appeal to authority, and that's not how science works. No other scientist of any merit agree with her, and even people who might be assumed to be on her side think she's a bit too much to swallow so there's there's i found some articles there's a natural health advocate group who have taken her to task over her denial in one paper that vitamin b is good for people apparently not and even one of the biggest pro-organic food advocates in the u.s michael hansen who is head of the consumers union who's a sort of a food safety advocacy group in the u.s has publicly said she is not to be trusted so I just, I just wanted to talk a little bit about her. There is a book coming out. You may even see it in Angus and Robertson bookshops who apparently are going to stock it. Don't buy it. It's a load of rubbish. But ultimately, glyphosate might have some problems and people are still researching this chemical. But attaching it to every possible human health problem that's claimed to be on the increase is dishonest unless you've got evidence to show how that connection exists and that it actually is there. Uh, And using qualifications in one field to promote work in an unrelated area is also the epitome of dishonesty. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation for 3CR Community Radio. And it's across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1 or you can find us on your friendly podcast app where if you have the chance to give us a good rating and review, please do so as that will help raise us up in the search rankings and other people can find us or you can just listen to us however you have listened to this podcast. Same time every week. 
Claire, Stu, and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.